This is Marshall Weiss, editor and publisher of the Dayton Jewish Observer, and I'm happy to be with you this week for the Jewish News Hour. This week, I'll give you a sneak preview of the May issue of the Dayton Jewish Observer. First, from the Dayton section, Women Inspiring Women at Beth Jacob. Beth Jacob Congregation will present its second annual Jewish Women Inspiring Jewish Women Luncheon at 11 a.m. Sunday, May 22nd. Speakers for the event are Rabbi Judy Chesson, Deborah Edelman, Judy Feinstein, Allison Footer, Debbie Lieberman, and Marcy Paul. Beth Jacob is located at 7020 North Main Street, Harrison Township. The cost is $18. RSVP by May 13th to 937-274-2149 or Beth Jacob number one. Beth Jacob numeral one at AOL.com. Community Yom Ha'atzma'ot celebration May 1st. Dayton's Jewish community will host its Yom Ha'atzma'ot Israel Independence Celebration from 1.30 to 4 p.m. Sunday, May 1st at Indian Riffle Park, 2801 Stroop Road, Kettering. The free program will include live music, Israeli dancing, demonstrations of Krav Maga, Israeli martial arts, and children's activities. Israeli-style kosher box lunches will be available for purchase in advance by rochelskitchen.com. That's R-O-C-H-E-L-S-K-I-T-C-H-E-N.com. Beth Abraham Sunday Funday. Beth Abraham Synagogue's second annual Sunday Sunday, as in spelled like the ice cream, Funday, will be held at 3.30 p.m. on Sunday, May 22nd. The free program will feature Grader's Ice Cream Sundays and activities for all ages. Beth Abraham is located at 305 Sugar Camp Circle, Oakwood. JWV to place flags at graves for Memorial Day. Jewish War Veterans Post 587 invites volunteers to help place American flags at the graves of Jewish veterans for Memorial Day weekend. JWV will place flags at Beth Jacob Cemetery at 10 a.m. Friday, May 20th, and at the Temple Beth Or section of David Cemetery, Beth Abraham Cemetery, and Temple Israel's Riverview Cemetery at 10 a.m. Sunday, May 22nd. Post 587's Bugler will play taps at all the cemeteries where it will place flags. Other veteran and civic groups will place flags at other cemeteries. JWV places a metal flag holder beside each Jewish veteran's grave. The holders help JWV to quickly find veterans' graves. To have a flag holder placed at the grave of a Jewish veteran in time for Memorial Day, call Post Commander Steve Markman at 937-886-9566. Acrobats for Chabad Lagba Omer Barbecue. The Chicago Boys Acrobatic Team will provide the entertainment for Chabad of Greater Dayton's Lagba Omer Barbecue at 6 p.m. Thursday, May 19th. As seen on America's Got Talent, the Chicago Boys' performances include stunts and side-twirling ropes, catapulting off mini trampolines and tumbling routines. The cost for the barbecue is $18 adults, $7 children. Chabad is located at 2001 Far Hills Avenue, Oakwood. Register at ChabadDayton.com. Hadassah's virtual tour of Design Museum Halon exhibit, The Ball. Dayton Hadassah will present a virtual exhibit, The Ball, 
from the Design Museum of Halon, Israel, 11.50 a.m., Tuesday, May 17th. The exhibit explored the connections and histories of Ball's Western fashion and the contemporary creation of leading fashion designers in Israel. It featured 120 ball gowns representing historical and contemporary designs. Alone is one of Dayton's sister cities. The cost is $18. To register, call Julie Bloom at 937-416-6711. Next, from the Dayton section of the Observer, area reform leaders mourn HUC vote to end residential rabbinical program in Cincinnati. To say that Hebrew Union College in Cincinnati's connections with Dayton area reform congregations run deep would be an understatement. It was natural for the architect of Reform Judaism in the United States, Rabbi Isaac Mayer Wise, to reach out from his Cincinnati perch to nearby Jewish congregations and unite them within his vision of Reform Judaism and via an umbrella organization for America's synagogues. Dayton's Temple Israel, then B'nai Yesharon, began using Wise's Reform Prayer Book in 1861. Wise co-officiated at the 1863 dedication of Temple Israel's first synagogue building with more of his reforms to follow. An organ for worship services in 1865 the elimination of prayer shawls in 1869, and egalitarian seating and an egalitarian choir in 1875. That was the same year Wise established his Reform Rabbinic Seminary Hebrew Union College in Cincinnati. When Wise established the Union of American Hebrew Congregations, now the Union for Reform Judaism in 1873, three Miami Valley synagogues were among its 24 charter members. Temple Israel, Temple Anche Emeth in Piqua, and Temple Shalom in Springfield. Wise himself oversaw the training of HUC's first generation of rabbis from the first ordination class of 1883 through the class of 1900, ordained only a few months after his death. Now, with campuses in New York, Los Angeles, and Jerusalem, the Board of HUC voted in New York April 11th to end its 147-year-old Cincinnati Residential Rabbinic Program by the end of the 2026 academic year. The Board, which approved the decision by more than a two-thirds vote, has cited shrinking revenue and enrollment in the rabbinical program on all campuses, but in particular at Cincinnati, as key to its decision. It also cited increasing competition from rabbinical students, for rabbinical students from independent Jewish seminaries in the United States, those not affiliated with a particular Jewish movement. In a statement following the vote, the board committed to maintaining its graduate school and academic resources on the Cincinnati campus, the Cloud Library, American Jewish Archives, and Skirball Museum as well as to develop a low-residency hybrid rabbinical and cantorial program to serve all of Jewish North America. Leaders with local reform congregations tell the observer they mourn the coming loss of the rabbinic program and are skeptical about the overall future of HUC's Cincinnati campus. I'm grieving. I feel that the administration doesn't fully realize the impact of a decision of this magnitude from the Midwest said Temple Israel Senior Rabbi Karen Bodney Hallis, who received her ordination in Cincinnati in 20, uh, 2007.
As an HUC rabbinic student, she oversaw Temple Israel's religious school for four years, beginning in 2003. It doesn't come as a surprise to me, but I'm deeply disappointed. They grossly underestimate the amount of support and funding that comes from the Midwest. I know that there are those who strongly disagree, but I do think there's a sense of coastal elitism that has led to this position, which I find somewhat egregious. Bodney Hallis said that leaders in the reform movement have submitted solutions to the challenges of declining enrollment for years, but at least according to those who've submitted them, they've been quickly dismissed and not discussed at a high level. The board's decision, she said, limits who can apply based on if they can afford to live on the coasts. People who used to be able to consider the rabbinate may have to think twice without having a Midwestern option. Eileen Litchfield, a longtime past president and current vice president of Temple Anche Yemeth and Piqua, said her congregation of 20 memberships has relied on rabbinic interns from HUC's Cincinnati campus to lead its monthly worship services for more than 25 years. She said she learned of the HUC board's plan for Cincinnati two weeks before the vote and not through any communication from HUC or the reform movement. After 2026, our future is in considerable jeopardy, Litchfield said. We presently pay $600 per regular services, much more for the high holy days plus mileage. We have only been able to afford one service per month for years. We can only assume the congregation will bear the cost of bringing a rabbinic intern from the coast. Airfare plus other related costs will double our monthly expense. Litchfield said the congregation sent a letter of protest to HUC's board and individual congregants also sent personal letters. We learned from a faculty member at HUC that they were threatened if they talked about it, she said. Religion News Service reported that HUC's Cincinnati campus has 27 rabbinical students this year, down from 51 students in the 2008-2009 school year. HUC's Los Angeles campus has 40 students, and the New York campus has 45. HUC overall faces a deficit of $8.8 million. The lack of being proactive in recruiting students felt like a cowardly surrender in closing the campus because it was the easy way out, Litchfield said. Bodney Hallis said members of HUC's administration have told potential rabbinic students behind the scenes that Cincinnati's rabbinic program would be closing. So if that would be what you're hearing, would you want to start on a campus that you couldn't complete your work on or that's not going to continue to be supported on by HUC? In many ways, it felt very self-fulfilling. Rabbi Judy Chesson has served as Temple Beth Or's rabbi since its first Shabbat service in January 1985 in Washington Township. She received her ordination from HUC in Cincinnati seven months before. She said she mourned the HUC board's choice. Our own Dayton community has been greatly enhanced by our affiliation with the college. Chesson said every rabbi at Temple Beth Or has arrived here because of the Cincinnati HUC campus. Now, geographic access to quality, certified, reformed clergy and professionals may be changing. Regarding the American Jewish Archives, Clough Library, and Skirball Skirball Museum, she said, these resources cannot be moved. 
but will exist without rabbinic students to access them. And the rabbinic students on the coasts will not be near the very holdings which promote academic excellence. Bodney Hallis emphasized the importance of holding HUC's board and administration accountable for carrying out their promises for, quote, reimagining Cincinnati. They have made some big promises, sustaining the AGAA, Plow Library, and reimagining the Cincinnati campus as a research center, and that, I think, will be difficult for them to keep. I don't think it will be easy to maintain the graduate school without the presence of the rabbinic program. This has completely torn our movement apart and will have a lasting impact. Bodney Hallis and Temple Israel, as well as Chesson individually, were among more than 480 signatories on a letter to Union of Reformed Judaism President Rabbi Rick Jacobs in advance of the HUC board's April 11th vote. JTA reported the letter said the signatories would reassess how we allocate our budgetary priorities to the URJ should the plan pass, citing the movement cutbacks in youth programming in recent years as evidence of a potential abandonment of our geographic region. URJ Temple dues provide funding to HUC. I'm not sure how this will impact our community moving forward, Bodney Hallis said. Right now, the focus for all of us is trying to come to a place of healing. Because we care so deeply for the movement and the history and the relationships and all that it has the power to bring to our communities. And next from the Observer, Israeli drone docking company to base U.S. manufacturing in Centerville. Montgomery County is now the home of U.S. manufacturing for an Israeli company that produces universal autonomous drone docking and recharging stations. Niv Aharoni, CEO and founder of Strix Drones, made the announcement April 11th at Sinclair College's National UAS Training and Certification Center. We were founded four years ago in Israel. What we are doing that is different from other companies is that we can fit any kind of drone in our unit, he said. We see ourselves as the prime technology for docking station for any kind of drone. What we are trying to do is combine technology of the software and the hardware. Strix, which is based in Hod Hasharon and has an office in Miami, has leased manufacturing space from Ram Precision Industries in Centerville. Aharoni told the Observer he decided to manufacture his docking stations in the Dayton area because it holds the ideal environment. They have all the factories for our steel, they have knowledge and land, and we can work together with them. We looked for a year to find a good place, and we find that Dayton is by far the best place. He plans to hire 10 to 20 people for the manufacturing venture this year and hopes to expand to more than 50 people next year. Itay Tayas Zamir, who handles business development for Strix, told the Observer he encouraged Aharoni to select Dayton for U.S. manufacturing based on Zamir's past experiences with the Dayton Region Israel Trade Alliance, a collaborative of the city of Dayton, Montgomery County, and the Dayton Development Coalition. In 2016, Zamir brought a company he co-founded, Woosh Water, to Sinclair College for its first pilot site tests outside of Israel. Though Dayton was not selected as the manufacturer for Woosh's water stations in the United States, Zamir was impressed with Drita's hard work and creativity on the project. Drita facilitated everything, Zamir said, of the Strix venture. 
They introduced us to our manufacturing partners, Ram Precision and Buddha Sheet Metal Works. What convinced Neve was the added value, the extra mile from Drita. Samir added that Strix is also partnering with Sinclair's National UAS Center for tech support and on-demand pilots. We have trained technicians and a pilot from the UAS National Center from graduated students from Sinclair, he said. Strix, Zamir said, already has a pilot project with Walmart. It will present a demonstration at Walmart's Bentonville, Arkansas headquarters in mid-May. Strix will also demonstrate its docking stations to a medical logistics company. By the end of May, Zamir said, Strix plans to begin its manufacturing in Centerville. Next from the Observer, Noah Tishby named Israel's first ever special envoy for combating anti-Semitism. Show keynote Federation's President's Dinner at the Dayton Arcade, May 15th. Israeli Minister of Foreign Affairs Yair Lapid has appointed Israel's first special envoy for combating anti-Semitism and the delegitimization of Israel, naming Israeli-American artist and author Noah Tishby to the position. Making the announcement on April 11th in Jerusalem, Lapid said the creation of this post and the appointment of Tishbi is another step that will strengthen Israel and our fight against anti-Semitism internationally at a moment when Jews around the world once again face an alarming and dramatic resurgence in anti-Semitism. She is charged with raising awareness of delegitimization efforts against Israel, advocating against hate toward Jews, and spearheading initiatives worldwide, according to the Foreign Affairs Ministry. In 2011, Tishbe founded Act for Israel, an online advocacy organization. In 2021, she wrote Israel, a simple guide to the most misunderstood country on earth. The ministry described her as a leading voice in the United States and abroad in fighting anti-Semitism and anti-Israel delegitimization efforts. She has been recognized as one of the 50 most influential Jews in the world by the Jerusalem Post. Tishbe was born in Israel and served in the Israeli Defense Forces. She received a drama scholarship from the Tel Aviv Museum of Arts and appeared in popular Israeli television, film, and stage productions before establishing her film and television career in the United States as a producer, actor, and writer. Tishbe will keynote the Jewish Federation of Greater Dayton's President's Dinner in the rotunda of the newly opened Dayton Arcade, May 15th. I can imagine no greater honor than representing the State of Israel to work to eradicate the rising threat of irrational and dangerous hate against Jews, bring anti-Semitism to the surface, and foster dialogue, Tishbe said. The danger facing Jews and the State of Israel is more prevalent now than at any time since World War II and the Holocaust. A recent FBI report found that Jews are the target of 58% of religiously motivated hate crimes in the United States, while making up just 2% of the population, the ministry said in announcing the appointment. Jewish Federation's President's Dinner with Noah Tishbe will be held at 5 p.m. Sunday, May 15th at the Dayton Arcade, 35 West 4th Street. Tickets are $100 each. $50 per young adult, ages 35 and under. Kashrut will be observed. Participants will be asked to make their pledges to the 2022 Jewish Federation annual campaign. RSVP by May 1st to Jewish Dayton forward slash events. 
brunch discussion on Americanism in Jewish Dayton a century ago. Marshall Weiss, editor and publisher of the Dayton Jewish Observer and project director of Miami Valley Jewish Genealogy and History, will present the talk Judaism and Americanism in Dayton a century ago at 9.45 a.m. Sunday, May 8th at Temple Israel, 130 Riverside Drive, Dayton. The brunch program is part of Temple Israel's Writer Band Lecture Series and is presented in partnership with Miami Valley Jewish Genealogy and History. The author of two books about the history of Dayton's Jewish community, Weiss will talk about the local Jewish community's vigorous efforts in the 1920s to Americanize its newest arrivals from Eastern Europe. The brunch discussion is presented in memory of Franklin T. Cohn by Natalie R. Cohn, Shari Lynn Cohn, and Dr. Gregory Cohn. The cost is $7 at the door. Reservations may be made at jewishdayton.org forward slash events. Next from the Dayton section, Air Force Security Assistance Manager's Greatest Career Moment When Israel Destroyed Syria's Nuclear Reactor. While being interviewed March 22nd as part of an Air Force Life Cycle Management Center Public Affairs video series, civilian employee Brian Kuntz said the greatest moment of his career was in 2007 when Israel destroyed a Syrian reactor that was in a piece of territory that was later controlled by ISIS. The thought of ISIS with a nuclear reactor is kind of scary as it should be, said the 25-year Air Force Civil Service employee. It was destroyed with F-16s and F-15s, both of which I played a small part in. But that's where you see that FMS, foreign military sales, really pays off, that the world is safer because of what they did with the aircraft that we supplied to them. In honor of Israel's 74th Independence Day, observed this year on May 5th, the observer interviewed Kutz about his contributions to the U.S. Air Force Israel Security Assistance Program. Did you work through Wright-Patterson? Yes, I am a Department of the Air Force civilian employee at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. My current assignment is on the Israel F-15 Foreign Military Sales Program. There are several different career fields that play a role in any given FM FMS program, including program management, engineering, finance, contracting, logistics, test, and security. We employ U.S. government civilian employees, contractor support, and military members in those roles. Wright-Patterson offers great opportunities to work with foreign partners across the world. How often do you get over to Israel for your work? I just moved to the Israel F-15 program from a different F-15 FMS program, and I'm looking forward to traveling to Israel for the first time as the Israel F-15 Security Assistance Program Manager in the near future. I worked the Israel F-16I program for five years in the early 2000s and traveled to Israel once or twice per year. FMS program events can drive more or less travel to be warranted. On some FMS programs, I have traveled to the partner nation up to five times per year. Israel is unique in that it has a substantial and advanced defense industry that is, a uh, that is a supplier for many USAF and other countries' weapons systems, which has led me to travel Israel multiple times while working with a different FMS partner in order to get updates and view progress from critical Israeli suppliers. 
In addition to F-15s and F-16s, are there other items you provide for Israel in your work? The only Israel programs that I have worked are the F-15 and F-16. However, there are several other Israel programs managed at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, including transport and tanker aircraft. Israel is also an FMS partner in several other FMS programs across the Department of Defense and the separate services. Are you also the point person for replacement parts for aircraft that go to Israel? There is a large team of acquisition and logistics professionals across several bases and contractor locations that support the replacement parts process. For aircraft that have already been provided to Israel, the Air Force Security Assistance and Cooperation Directorate at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base is the focal point. AFSAC manages the requests and budget and works closely with the Israeli Air Force to monitor and accelerate the parts replacement process while working with other supporting organizations and defense contractors to fill the need. Is there anything else you would like our readers to know about your work with Israel? Israel is a critical ally of the United States in an important region of the world. The Israeli Mil Ministry of Defense and Israeli Air Force can be a very challenging and demanding FMS partner. However, they are also very appreciative of honest and hard work and see the work we do as a true partnership. At the end of the day, they are a joy to work with and you will grow professionally. They challenge you. Next from The Observer, 100 years ago, young black, Catholic, and Jewish leaders legally kept the Klan from rallying at Memorial Hall. UD Law Professor on why it couldn't happen today, why it's better for all the free speech bar has been raised. Though they were all in their 20s and 30s, the five young men were already well-respected in their professions and for championing social justice causes in Dayton. Ohio was a hotbed of Ku Klux Klan activity when the young men joined together on May 26, 1922 to file an injunction and prevent the Klan from hosting a speaker for an event, uh, invitation-only event, that evening at Memorial Hall that is now Montgomery County's War Memorial Facility. The Dayton Daily News informed its readers it brought to the attention of the Montgomery County Commissioners that the county had allowed the Klan to book the meeting. The Klan program was billed as a speech on Americanism by Billy Parker of Branson, Missouri. Parker was the editor of The New Menace, an anti-Catholic newspaper. The organizer of the event, C.L. Harrod King Kliegel of Columbus, had already been prevented from presenting Parker in Akron because of a court injunction. Although Montgomery County's commissioners claimed they weren't aware Memorial Hall had been rented to the Klan, Harrod boasted to the Dayton Daily News that there will be no interference. We have some of the most prominent city officials and citizens enrolled in our membership. They have assured us that nothing can stop our meetings. We will have no more interference. The commissioners didn't cancel the meeting. The five young men filed an injunction to bar the Klan from holding the event not only at Memorial Hall but anywhere in the county as the lecture to be given, quote, will provoke and incite riot and disorder within the city of Dayton and county of Montgomery and religious prejudice and hatred among the people thereof and may and will result in great and irreparable injury to person and property of the citizens of this county and state. The county judge granted the injunction hours before the scheduled event. 
Memorial Hall was locked up, and the Klan instead held its program that night at a high school in Greene County. The young men behind the injunction were Temple Israel's Rabbi Samuel Meyerberg, civic and business leader M.J. Gibbons Jr., a Catholic, and the Reverend John N. Samuels Beldober, pastor of the African-American St. Margaret's Episcopal Church. The attorneys who prepared the injunction were active in civil affairs as well as their respective religious communities, Sidney G. Kuswurm, a Jew, and John C. Shea, a Catholic. In Ohio, the Klan's main targets for hatred were black people, Catholics, and Jews. The plaintiff, Kuswurm and Shea named in the case, was Edward T. Banks, 48, an African-American department clerk with the municipal court. Banks was known for his speeches about the progress African-Americans made in business and professional fields. Back then, states could block something like the KKK rally, both because we didn't really think the First Amendment applied to the states at all, but also because even First Amendment jurisprudence applied to the federal government was fairly impoverished as compared to now, explains University of Dayton law professor Erica Goldberg, who teaches torts, constitutional law, and criminal procedure. She also blogs at inacrowdedtheater.com about free speech values. My personal view about this is that Jews have to be vigilant about anti-Semitism, and they have every right to be concerned for their safety, but we've also been on the forefront of protecting freedom of speech as an important principle, value, regardless of the speaker, and often, because we find the speaker's views really offensive, that really shows commitment to the principle. So sometimes these interests can be intention and not everyone agrees on whether or not we've land, where we've landed is correct, but certainly Jews have been on both sides of the issue, both wanting to prevent KKK rallies and hate group gatherings, but also wanting to protect their right to freedom of speech. At the time of the injunction in 1922, the First Amendment had not yet been incorporated against the states, Goldberg says. The First Amendment, technically, if you look at the text, only applies to Congress, meaning federal action, she says. Of course, that's no longer the case. Now the First Amendment applies to anything a state actor would do, a governor would do, a state legislature would do as well. Prior to 1925, Goldberg says, when the First Amendment started getting incorporated against the states, there was little states could not do when it came to censorship. Basically, all of the First Amendment litigation was happening because of congressional action. And then, even once the First Amendment got incorporated against the states, it was a much less robust conception of free speech than we have now. With the U.S. Supreme Court Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes' famous 1919 dissent in Abrams v. United States, in which he argued that speech should not be curtailed unless there is a present danger of immediate evil or the defendant intends to create such a danger, Goldberg says the First Amendment started picking up some traction in cases. It still took until 1969 for the First Amendment to develop strong protections of freedom of speech we have today. That Supreme Court case, which sets our modern incitement standard, Goldberg says, 
is Brandenburg versus Ohio. A Ku Klux Klan member was convicted under this statute called the Ohio Criminal Syndicalism Statute, she says. The Supreme Court set out the incitement standard because it wanted to distinguish between what it calls mere advocacy and incitement to imminent lawless action. We cannot punish advocacy even if it's advocacy for something detestable. And so the more general, the less imminent some statements are or their reason for a group's gathering, the more likely it is to be protected. So that current incitement standard is your speech can only be regulated as incitement if it's directed to and reasonably likely to produce imminent lawless action. Getting back to Dayton in 1922, Goldberg doesn't wonder at what now appears to be the stretch in the injunction's wording that the KKK event would incite riot and disorder. The standards were just applied very differently back then, she says. Usually, instead of the current incitement standard, the Brandenburg Clear and Present Danger standard, then they would say that people publishing pamphlets opposing World War II presented a clear and present danger. So even if they paid lip service to some sort of speech-protected standard, it often just wasn't applied in a very speech-protective way. And that's really different than now. And next from the Mazel Tov section of The Observer. Lisa Michaels, who has volunteered with Ohio's hospice for several years, tells us that its Pathways of Hope Grief Counseling Center needs male volunteers in particular for its Camp Pathways program for children and teens ages 7 to 17 who have experienced the death of a loved one. Volunteers ages 18 plus are needed to help support them during camp. June 24th to 26th at Camp Joy Outdoor Education Center in Warren County. Volunteers are asked to complete applications and submit references by Friday, April 29th. Lisa says this will be her fourth year volunteering for the camp. I have the honor of being a group leader for our littlest campers this year, she says. Being a buddy the last few years has been one of the most rewarding experiences. Applications are available at hospiceofdayton.org forward slash volunteers dash needed dash camp dash pathways dash 22. University of Dayton English professor Miriamne Crummel's new book, The Medieval Postcolonial Jew in and Out of Time, has just been published by University of Michigan Press. In it, she confronts the fraught temporal dissonances written into the structure of sacred Jewish and Christian time. This is Miriamne's third book about Jews in the medieval era. Hadassah Magazine's latest issue, which celebrates the centennial of the Bat Mitzvah, includes a reflection from Holocaust survivor and former Daytonian Cherie Rosenstein, who now lives in Beechwood. Cherie wrote about preparations for her adult Bat Mitzvah held March 12th at B'nai Jeshuron in Pepper Pike. Moviegoers who attended the premiere of As They Made Us at the Neon on April 9th were thrilled to have a surprise Zoom visit from its writer and director, Maya Bialik, and script supervisor, Jessica Wasserlauf, after the screening. Jessica, who is based in Pittsburgh, has plenty of family in Dayton who attended the premiere. As They Made Us marks Mayim's debut film as writer and director. 
It's time to send in college and grad school graduation announcements. Send these and all of your Mazel Tov announcements to jewishobserver at jfgd.net. And a bat mitzvah announcement, Hillary Bryn Katchman. Hillary Bryn Katchman will be called to the Torah as a bat mitzvah on Saturday, May 21st at Temple Israel. She is the daughter of Stephen and Nika Katchman and the sister of Gabriel Katchman. Hillary is a sixth grade student at Watts Middle School in Centerville. Her interests include music and band. She plays the trumpet and is looking forward to playing in the middle school jazz band next year. Hillary swims for Woodhaven Swim Club and has also played base, uh, basketball and soccer. For her service project, Hillary has been volunteering at the 10th Life Cat Rescue and will be collecting supplies for the shelter. Hillary is grateful for her religious school teachers, rabbis, and her family for their guidance and support as she becomes a bat mitzvah. And next on the religion page of the Observer was Dumbledore's Phoenix, Fox, on Noah's Ark by Rabbi Tina Sobo, Temple Israel. How do we approach seemingly mythical, magical, or otherwise logically implausible creatures referenced in the Bible and rabbinic literature, Midrash, Mishnah, Talmud? Using Natan Slifkin's book, Sacred Monsters, as a primary source, I explored this question in a recent lecture. One congregant asked why rationalist-inclined modern Jews might explore such imaginative elements of our tradition. I have a few thoughts as to how to respond and share them here. There are many ways to approach these monsters, but I hope you find the approach that works for your understanding of Jewish tradition and practice. Let's start with the question at hand. Was Dumbledore's phoenix fox on Noah's Ark? For Harry Potter-loving Jews, I refer you as well to the book Harry Potter and Torah by Dov Krolwich. For those less familiar with the phoenix according to various traditions dating back to at least 500 BCE, the phoenix is believed to be a unique creature that lives up to 500 years or is even immortal, renewing itself from fiery ashes. While we can readily find sources from Herodotus's writing through J.K. Rowling, what does this have to do with Jewish tradition and Noah's Ark? Most Jewish sources related to the phoenix are connected back to a verse from Job 29.18, which states, I thought, with all my nest I will expire, and like the Chol, I will increase my days. The most obvious translation of the word hall, the Hebrew word, is sand, but this leads to a mixed metaphor. By hermeneutical principles, this is problematic with the reference to Job's nest in the first half of the verse. This leads commentators such as the Malbim and Rashi to read hall not as sand but as a bird, which makes more sense with the nest metaphor in the beginning of the verse. This understanding is connected to a few Midrashim, rabbinic commentaries on Genesis, which ascribe the whole as refraining from eating of the tree of knowledge when Eve offered its fruit to all creatures, thus giving a basis for its immor uh, immortality. 
other creatures were punished with mortality due to their consumption from the forbidden tree. Then, in the Midrash on the Flood narrative, we have a scene of Noah encountering the hull on the ark, being humble and refraining from asking for food. Noah blesses the bird with immortal life. From these accounts, rabbinic tradition ascribes credence to the chol as a bird with a very long or eternal lifespan that can rejuvenate itself, possibly through fire. In other words, a Jewish version of the phoenix that works within our tradition and goes back to the initial verse from Job makes a statement make sense. After the trials Job faces, to desire such a renewal would certainly be understandable. The question remains as to whether we take these sources to literally mean the rabbis believed such a creature actually exists, or perhaps are using the legend of it as a literary device, or both. A rationalist could argue that if such a bird existed, experts would have found evidence of it by now. But perhaps this bird is wise, knowing it is unique and by some versions of the legend, only one phoenix exists in the world. It remains in hiding. There would be no fossil since it is immortal, or very few if it lives 500 years or more. Perhaps we just haven't found it yet. The possibility that the phoenix is real helps open our minds to be more imaginative in how we approach not just the phoenix in our tradition, but other aspects as well talking donkeys, dolphin skins in the tabernacle, etc. What impact does one's view, the phoenix being legendary or real, have on our theological beliefs? Does it change our perception of the moral lessons and legal impacts these texts have on our modern practice if we believe these creatures to be or have been in existence, to believe our ancestors believed they existed, to be a miracle of the time or to see them as purely literary imagination. I find myself sometimes stymied by the desire to know for sure, to find the bottom line, the compelling answer. We have lived the last two years in deep uncertainty as we have navigated COVID. The act of approaching our texts with similar uncertainty allows that uncertainty to simply be as we ponder the meanings opens the text to new understandings. The power of asking the question gives us a different perspective when we challenge our assumptions of the text, whatever they may be. May you look at our texts with an open mind and perhaps see a phoenix someday. And next from the Jewish Family Education page of The Observer, Fall Down, Get Up in the Power of Stories series by Candice Arquiatek. Attacked, stripped, and dumped underground, the teen shivered while the gang debated his fate for disrespecting the family and making pretentious claims to power. Traded to local traffickers and transported to a foreign country, the teen was eventually sold to the captain of an elite military guard. Recognized for his capabilities and potential, the young slave advanced in position and power until a false accusation landed him in prison. Nearly a decade later, he was released as a free man and pardoned by the country's leader, who placed him in a key administrative position in the national public policy sector. His name was Joseph. 
In the biblical account, Joseph descends three times. His brothers cast him into a pit. Ishmaelite traders transport him to Egypt as a slave, and he is thrown into an Egyptian prison. Each time, however, writes spiritual leader Danny Massang, he is raised up again a better Joseph, destined for a better life. In Judaism, this phenomenon is known as Yerida L'Tzorech Aliyah, a descent that facilitates an ascent. Built into the very design of all creation, it describes the patterns of history, the movement of peoples, even the nature of individual lives. In the beginning, the Torah declares there was chaos and darkness. Then God brought forth order and light, dark before light. The Talmudic sages imagine Adam's first day in the garden. Woe is me, he cried as the sun set. The world is becoming dark, returning to chaos and disorder. When dawn broke, he said in wonderment, evidently the sun sets and night arrives, and this is the order of the world, night before day, descent for the sake of ascent. We read of Jacob's famine-plagued family who were welcomed into Egypt like nobility only for their descendants to be enslaved by a pharaoh who knew not Joseph. Hundreds of years later, Moses led them in the exodus to Sinai, slavery before freedom and revelation, descent for the sake of ascent. Involuntarily married to the pagan king Ahasuerus, the Jewish Queen Esther was perfectly positioned to reveal Haman's evil plot and save the Persian Jews, descent for the sake of ascent. Ruled by the increasingly tyrannical Hellenizing Syrian Greeks, the Maccabees of Judea rebelled and triumphed. Their legacy? The first independent Jewish state in Judea in over 400 years. Inspiration to fight for religious freedom and liberty. And Hanukkah commemorating the rededication of the temple and reminding us that light can come from darkness. Yerida Letzorah Aliyah. In a famous letter, the Lubavitcher Rebbe used surgery to illustrate the concept that an ascent can only be achieved by a prior descent. A Martian entering an operating theater wouldn't imagine that the surgical team was doing something good by cutting the patient open, he wrote, that it would ultimately restore the person to health. Similarly, Rabbi Shlomo of Radomsk observed a seed will never sprout and grow unless it first disintegrates into the earth. There is no rising without first falling, as we see in the following stories. The Gladiator A gladiator and bandit, Resh Lakish, saw a figure bathing in the Jordan River. Jumping in to pursue it, he found only Rabbi Yochanan, who explained, Your strength is fit for Torah. Resh Lakish countered, Your beauty is fit for women. Rabbi Yochanan cleverly offered, If you return to the study of Torah, I will give you my sister in marriage, who is more beautiful than I am. Reish Lakesh accepted. Under the tutelage of Rabbi Yochanan, he became Rabbi Shimon ben Lakesh, one of the most prominent Torah scholars of his generation. The Tourist Somber visits to Holocaust sites in Poland and the Czech Republic during a senior year trip brought high schooler Penina Graubart face-to-face with her family history and the near destruction of the Jewish people. 
I was at my lowest point, she remembers, but there she found inspiration. Dedicating herself to protecting present and future Jews would become her new mission. She went on to explore Israel, deciding to make it her home. Today, Penina attends the university in Israel where she advocates on behalf of the Jewish people. The Volunteer You are the most despicable, disgraceful, and rude person. I think you need to change your attitude and I wish you good luck. Miriam heard on the voicemail message. A volunteer organizer for the local Gemach, the free loans service, she was heartsick, her eyes filling with tears. She had explained there was no storage room for additional items at the moment, and she had been accused of screaming. She had offered a referral to another gemach and was accused of making excuses. And now the voicemail? Could there be any truth in the caller's accusations? On reflection, Miriam realized she was spread too thin and burned out, influencing her attitude and interactions. After making some changes, her volunteer work was once again infused with joy and kindness. God created the world in a way that in order to jump, you must first crouch down, writes Rabbi Ari Shvat. Yerida B'Tzorach Aliyah. There is no advancement in life without first going down. Or, as Rabbi Sheila Peltz-Weinberg puts it, life is an endless series of events that can be encapsulated in the phrase, fall down, get up. And literature to share, as suggested by Candice R. Quietek, The Upstander, How Surviving the Holocaust Sparked Max Glauben's Mission to Dismantle Hate by Jory Epstein. This short, powerful memoir reads like a conversation between two friends, Max and Jory, a young reporter who magically captures Max's exuberant personality. Unusually observant from childhood, Max recounts endless experiences peppered with remembered thoughts and images, along with funny and poignant anecdotes. Woven in are historical records that add another layer to his tale. He warns against the insidious nature of hate, but his ultimate message is that one must deliberately choose a positive life. My Israel and Me by Alice McGinty Israel and Me takes young readers on an inviting journey through the land, history, and cultures of Israel. Told from a child's perspective in rhyming quartets, each experience includes a prose sidebar with added detail. Colorful illustrations showcase modern cities, historical sites, landscapes, and marketplaces while portraying the diversity of Israel's people, European, Ethiopian, Bedouin, Muslim, and more. Everyone contributes something unique to the land. An excellent introduction to Israel on many levels, highly recommended for home or school. And next, the obituary section of The Observer. Ava Strauss Eisenson passed away on March 22nd at home with her husband and three children by her side. Born in Leipzig, Germany in 1937, Ava grew up in Portsmouth, Ohio. She practiced as a dental hygienist after graduating from The Ohio State University. She enjoyed traveling, playing competitive bridge, and above all, spending time with her family and friends. Ava was preceded in death by her parents, Herbert and Gisela Strauss. She was survived by her husband of 63 years, Fred, her children and their spouses, Mark Eisenson and Susan Sheffield of Atlanta, Rivers and Kathy Jenkins of Charleston, Dan and Peggy Eisenson of Cincinnati, 
and her grandchildren, Reeve, Peter, Kaysen, Sam, Will, Molly, Lark, and Chris. Donations may be made in Ava's memory to the UD Men's Basketball Restrictive Fund, 300 College Park, Dayton, Ohio, 45469-7054. Fred M. Eisenson, age 87, of Kettering, passed away April, April 4th at Cleveland Heart Clinic with his three children by his side. Sadly, Fred's beloved wife and companion of 63 years, Ava Eisenson, passed away less than two weeks prior. Together, they cherished spending time and holidays with their children, grandchildren, and friends. Fred is survived by his loving children, Mark and Susan of Atlanta, Kathy and Rivers Jenkins of Charleston, Dan and Peggy of Cincinnati, his grandchildren, Riv, Peter, Kaysen, Sam, Will, Molly, Lark, and Chris his sister Nancy and Ira Leeds of Davie, Florida, and her sisters Marcy, Susan, and Jennifer. Fred was preceded in death by his parents Ray and Al Eisenson and in-laws Herbert and Gisela Strauss. Born in Pittsburgh, Fred grew up in Weirton, West Virginia. He attended the University of Michigan where he proudly played first clarinet in the marching band. He graduated from the University of Miami and earned his Juris Doctor degree from The Ohio State University. Fred pra practiced law for 41 years in the Dayton community, followed by 15 years as a magistrate for Vandalia Mun Municipal Court. Among his many legal appointments, he served as Assistant City of Dayton Prosecutor and Law Director for the City of Trotwood. Fred's hobbies included painting, cartooning, writing, and rooting on the Buckeyes and flyers. Family meant everything to Pop. Interment was at David Cemetery. Donations may be made online in memory of Fred Eisenson in support of research to the Cardiovascular Medicine Department Fund at the Cleveland Clinic. Give.ccf.org. Irving Kaplan, age 91, of Jacksonville, Florida, formerly of Dayton, passed away March 31st. Irving was the retired owner of Kaplan and Associates and Kaplan Warehouse Rental. He was an Air Force veteran of the Korean War, a member of the Jewish War Veterans, Hadassah, and Beth Abraham Synagogue. He was preceded in death by his beloved wife, Shirley, and son, Jonathan. Irving is survived by his nieces, nephews, cousins, and friends. Interment was at Beth Abraham Cemetery. If desired, memorial contributions may be made memorial contributions may be made to Beth Abraham Synagogue. Nancy Wiviot, age 88, of Kettering, passed away April 10th. Nancy was born in St. Louis. Nancy is survived by her sons Jeffrey Wiviot, Gary Wiviot, and daughter Cheryl and Mike Ehrlichman. Grandchildren Dr. Robert Ehrlichman and Blair, Brian Ehrlichman and Adam Ehrlichman, great-granddaughter Lucy Ehrlichman, life companion Ernie Kocher. Nancy retired as a civilian employee of Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. Nancy was a member of Temple Israel. She enjoyed spending time with her family. Memorial contributions may be made to the charity of your choice. And Gerald Jerry R. Kotler, Ph.D. On April 6th, Jerry went to be with his beloved wife of 60 years, Lorraine, who preceded him in 2020. His daughter was holding his hand when he left. 
Jerry was born on June 19, 1938, in Brooklyn, New York. A fact he was proud to tell anyone who commented on his accent. He received his B.S. in Metallurgical Engineering in Brooklyn, his M.S. in Metallurgy at Carnegie Tech, now Carnegie Mellon in Pittsburgh, where he met his wife and they had their first child, and his Ph.D. in Material Science at Stanford, California, where his son was born. He left California to take a position in research and development at Ford in Michigan. After two years there, he left for a better opportunity in Hightstown, New Jersey, at a large corporation called NL Industries. After four years there, he was promoted to technical director of the company's die-casting division in Toledo, Ohio, Dollar Jarvis, the largest die-casting company in the world at the time. Five years later, the company underwent a reorganization and his position was eliminated. Given six months severance to find a new position, he had multiple offers and in 1979 chose to take a position as vice president of engineering for a manufacturing company called Dayton Walther. Jerry purchased a home that happened to be two doors down from the home of the recruiter who bought, brought him to Dayton. They spoke frequently and the recruiter convinced him that Jerry would make an exceptional recruiter. He was a scientist, um, a patent-holding engineer. Recruiting would be a risky change, going from a VP salary to straight commission. But because Jerry was very unhappy where he was and did not want to uproot his family again, he decided to make a total career change and took a position as an account executive for the Dayton franchise of Management Recruiters International in 1980. With over 3,000 recruiters worldwide, Jerry was named MRI Account Executive of the Decade in 1989, thereby reaching pinnacles of two completely different careers within 21 years. He eventually became co-owner of Dayton MRI Franchise and continued recruiting in Dayton until 2007. A lifelong learner, he and his wife Lorraine were taking classes together right up until COVID began despite Jerry's already advancing dementia. In addition to his wife, he was preceded in death by his parents, Esther and Lewis Kotler, his brother-in-law and dear friend Steve Marcus, and his beloved nephew, Joshua E. Kotler. He is survived by his aunt, Evelyn Barnett, older brother, Martin and Fran, younger brother, Herman and Mina, younger sister, Renee Krieger and Abraham, Sister-in-law Sandra Marcus, sister-in-law Mona Abramowitz and David, daughter Beth Batsheva Fallenhol and Andrew Shlomo Fallenhol, son Michael and Hillary, nieces and nephews, Marcy, Kelly, Kevin and Stacy, Avery and Corrine, Matt, Jonathan and Julia, Anna and Dan, Daniela and Joseph, Tanya and Zach, Larry, Brian, Rebecca and Benjamin, Benjamin and Danny and Mickey as well as cousins, great-nieces, nephews, countless dear friends, and the light of his golden years, his only grandchild, Lily Fullenhull. Interment was at Beth Abraham's cemetery. Jerry would have wanted to offer his deepest appreciation to the wonderful staff of Spring Hills Singing Woods Assisted Living Facility and the blessing that is Compassious Hospice. Donations may be sent to AmericanBrainFoundation.org, Hyas.org, or the charity of your choice. Well, that's all the time we have this week for the Jewish News Hour. This is Marshall Weiss, editor and publisher of the Dayton Jewish Observer, and I thank you for listening.